0: Okay, a, um, a few months ago, um, a man named Chris Newland, who is a member of this church, put on a program for the staff here on um, how to communicate uh, to people in this divisive time and culture. And uh, I thought it was one of the best things that I have heard in a long, long time. And I asked Chris if he would come, uh, if he would find a time and come and adapt that presentation to uh, for, this, for this class. And so he's going to come next Sunday, and the title of his talk is Moral Failings, Why Politics and Religion are Tearing Us Apart. And this is with Chris Newland. And, and uh, really, uh, I strongly, strongly encourage you to uh, come and hear this. So your daily practice is going well? Why does people laugh at that? I don't know. You know, to be frank, I would have to change my name. So hello to the pajama people and to the wine and cheese people and to all of you who are here. I'm so very, very, very grateful to you. So today, I'm going to issue you an invitation. Um, The good old fashioned Southern evangelical Baptist part of me is going to creep out. (laughs) And I'm going to ask you, I'm going to issue an invitation, you know, like we used to in church and, and, and uh, to take a deeper step into um, sacred mystery. And uh, I'm warning you, which I did in the preview that went out, that I'm going to refer to this deeper step uh, into sacred mystery today as um, being in Christ. And immediately I sent some of you going, oh, because it's this kind of religious language that turns people off, a lot of people. And, and I would suspect that a lot of people in this group are here to get away from this kind of language. And also, uh, it's language that's indecipherable. People don't know uh, w- what it means. Um, it's not a phrase you can use in the office tomorrow. But I have come to the conclusion that I really can't go any further in the direction I, I want to um, in this emphasis on following Jesus without picking this phrase up and um, trying to make meaning out of it. So if it turns out to be too religious, I'm sorry. It won't last long. <laughs> this, this particular emphasis is not a huge block of the talk, so it will be over. It's a bit like getting in a root canal. It's not good, (laughs) but it won't last forever. And for some of you, who knows, it may not be religious enough. It's always that possibility too. So I want to begin by by sharing with you a story a, a colleague of mine shared with me. And if I had been smart enough to think of it, I could have said the same story to him because I've had this, and maybe I, I'm almost positive that some of you in this room have had this experience as well. I've seen the same thing. We were talking about the kind of things that I've been trying to deal with lately in, in putting together my reflections on the topics that are brought up in the two books that I have mentioned to you. One, Christ in Crisis by Jim Wallace, and the other, 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life by Karen Armstrong. Um, I will probably keep mentioning these books, so you might as well go ahead and get them <laughs> and read them. Um, they're, they're wonderful. Karen Armstrong's book is, is really quite... Uh, Just a wealth of information. Both of them are readable, but just a wealth of information. Anyway, uh, my colleague was telling me about the town where he grew up and how there had been a man who lived in that town who had an extensive model train set up. Okay? He had it in his basement. And there was one guy in our that town where I grew up that had this, a very, very similar thing. And over time, the train setup grew so elaborate that the guy even put kind of like bleachers on the side of the basement wall so people could come in and see the train setup. It was amazing. You would, you would just think it was 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 incredible. Of course, when kids went in to see the train setup, they couldn't touch it. Oh, no, you could just watch it. And so this train setup was kept in pristine condition, and it was the model of perfection. Now, you can do this, too, but I went on the Internet to find some of the pictures of train setups like this. Uh, there was a guy here in Houston, he, now, he recently moved to Austin, who was a consulting client of mine. I worked in his business for a while. He was an engineer. He is an engineer. And he had set up, train setups like this in his house. In his house. And there was a, just a room. And he built a house in Austin to, um, to specs. I mean, he's an engineer, he built a house himself. And, and he put a room in there. Uh, that had, just was devoted to his trains. And the trains would chug around the track. There would be several trains. They could go through tunnels. And when they would come to street crossings, the little guards would come down, you know. And they have little people in them. And the, the one in the hometown where I grew up had a lake. There were people water skiing on the lake, which was just amazing. Tidy, perfect manageable world my colleague said this is a world within a world where the man who had constructed the train setup was the conductor the engineer and the mayor (laughs) now here's the irony both for my colleague and in, in in my case as well now this is not true for the guy who lives in Austin on the outside this guy's world was deteriorating his house was not kept up. His yard was not kept up. He drifted away from his, his children, uh, his family. And, of course, he eventually died, and his train setup up, was dismantled and put away. I have no idea what may have happened to it. And the point my colleague was making is that um, the church has created its own little world with its triumphs and its tragedies. And then, you know, the drama the church has created. We have our heroes and our villains. We have Jesus and the saints. We have Satan and the sinners. And um, like the train set up in in this guy's house, the church offers a kind of alternative reality, Um, a place where people can escape. It's a very neat, ordered world. And in the church, the powers that be are in control. They say who's in and out. And um, like, like the, the current battle that's being played out in the Methodist church over the gay issue, uh, which is played out in other places as well, it's done to purify the church. But what is really happening is that it fractures the church and it alienates people. For the church today to claim that the apex of human understanding was reached 2,000 years ago, or in the Council of Nicaea, is clearly a naive position to take. And as I have said and will likely repeat, the church's commitment, and really it's more of an obsession, to cosmological dualism and individual salvation. You all know what those are by now. Seems so offensive in the face of the issues that are pressing down upon us, like racism and sexism and disinformation for the truth. This obsession with dualism and an afterlife lead to an ethically unbalanced life. Besides, it's a theology based on fear and not love. It's based on judgment and not graciousness. So years ago, I made a divide between the spiritual world and the psychological world. Called it mind and spirit, and um, that was a false dichotomy. There's no such split. You can't split them apart. We we cannot be led to a place of wholeness from a place of splitness. Dualism won't get us to where we say we want to be, and what we are learning from evolutionary cosmology is about paradox it's about harmony wholeness is not oneness and wholeness is harmony wholeness is not singing with one voice wholeness is singing with multiple voices that are in harmony with one another. Like in any piece of wonderful music, there's not just a melody, not just one part, but there are many different parts that come together to form a symphonic voice. So sacred mystery speaks to us in multiple voices. Some are big, booming, prophetic voices. And some, as one of my favorite hymns has it, is like the murmur of a dove's song. So in my own work and thinking, I've begun to explore and bring before you how our lives and living would be different if we really explored what it might look like um, to follow Jesus, not just to know about Jesus, but to actually follow him. Now, don't get scared. I'm not asking you to follow him. I'm just asking you to think about following him. Because <laughs> I'm not sure I'm very good at it either. There's a Japanese poet who was a favorite of Thomas Merton's. His name is Basho. And uh, Basho said, do not seek to follow in the footsteps of the wise. Seek what they sought. That, I think, might be a template for what it might mean to follow Jesus. To seek what he thought. And my affirmation in in my daily practice is that having a relationship with the God of Jesus will not leave me unchanged. Now, the language used in Christian tradition for this is being in Christ. And I would be willing to bet you that most people even or maybe especially those who have accepted Jesus as their personal Savior, and therefore they know without doubt that they are going to heaven when they die, could not tell you what this phrase means. So just to prove that, I'm going to call on three or four of you. (laughs) I mean, really, what would you say about what does this mean, this phrase? What What does the word Christ mean? And why is that word associated with Jesus? And further, what relevance What relevance does this word have for us? I, I, I love um, the, the question that, that the man that's coming to us from Australia raises. What, what are you asking me to imagine when you use this word Christ? The last conference, the Center for Action and Contemplation held... Uh, and the last book, most recent book written by Richard Rohr is The Universal Christ. And I think a lot of confusion is created because people hear the phrase Jesus Christ and they come to think that Christ is Jesus' last name. As I said in here before, it's like Mr. and Mrs. Christ had a baby and named him Jesus. Um, the word Christ is a title. It's like uh, calling somebody doctor or professor or governor, and and the word Christ is a Greek translation for a Hebrew word that means Messiah, and the literal the literal meaning of the word Messiah is smeared, like you smear oil on someone, and it used to be that when someone was elevated to a position of dignity in the Hebrew tradition that they would smear oil on their forehead or on their head to indicate that they were that they had received this designation it was like you crown somebody homecoming queen or you hang a medallion around an olympic winner's neck the smearing of the oil was that it was just the ritual part of designating that you you are now this leader you are now in this special position So, in the Jewish tradition, this idea grew up that there would be a leader who would come forward who would lead the Jewish people from the bondage that they were in. Actually, this is not just an idea. This became a powerful, religious, spiritual, political movement. The hope was... For these people who were under oppression, remember we're talking about some issues of justice here, there would come this person who would free them from bondage. He would be a freedom fighter. He would be a a valiant, warlike liberator who could go up against the forces of Rome and help people find liberation. And it was true that over a period of time, these would be messiahs would come on the scene, but they were quickly defeated and pushed down. For some, the idea of release from bondage began to pass away. That's just the way life is. There's nothing we can do about it. So just tend to your business. But for others, the dream would go deeper with each defeat, people would get angrier and more intense about their hope that they would be liberated. So at the time of Jesus, there were these kings over the Jewish people. They were puppets of Caesar and Rome. They were corrupt. They were complicit. But someday, the people dream. God will send us a leader who will be a powerful political and military leader, and we will anoint him our liberating king. So last week Holly talked about the liberation theology that has grown out of the slavery of people in this country as well as in the struggles of many people in in South American countries. And you could just think of the messianic vision that the Jewish people had as coming out of that kind of cultural social milieu. It was that kind of liberation theology that they were hoping for, that they would be set free. Now, just to be clear, this Jesus man, he didn't just one day decide to leave his father's carpenter shop and start wandering around the countryside preaching the Sermon on the Mount and healing people and turning water into wine. That's a myth. It didn't happen that way. It's a great story, but um, the word car- "the translated carpenter in Jesus' history is really day laborer. It was like a yard man, a yard person. That's the way Jesus and his father made money. But Jesus had this coming-of-age experience, probably when he was around 13 or 14, and left home. Those of you who have children have wanted your children to leave at 13 or 14. (laughs) Jesus actually probably did that. And he had a cousin and he knew there there were people who were agitating for different ways. And John, who was called the baptizer or the immerser, was one of those. And Jesus knew about him and went and became his disciple. Jesus, the the theory is, the likelihood is, that Jesus had been so impressed, so moved. Imagine, some of you have gone to um, church camps when you were kids, and you know on the last day they had this really emotional service and you had this religious experience. And if you haven't done that, we'll set that up for you soon. (laughs) So, uh, Jesus had this religious experience around the rite of purification, which is a big deal in Jewish practice. He went and and spent time with John the Baptist, and they immersed themselves in the river over and over and over. This is not just a one-time thing. This is something that they did over and over. And after a number of years, when Jesus decided to leave John by the time he did, he had made purification an inward thing, not an outward ritual, but something that happened inwardly. And he went around teaching that to people and giving that message away of freedom and liberation and cleanliness, and you don't have to go through the temple to do it. And he called fishermen to, to him. Uh, it's a, he did that because Rome had begun to invade on the fishing industry in the area where Jesus was, and it was collapsing. And so fishermen were eager to get part of this liberation movement, and so they were willing to follow him. Um, Many people, after a while, started believing that maybe Jesus is this liberator we've been looking for. Maybe he is the long-awaited Christ. So they wanted Jesus to unite the people in such a way that he would lead them into war against their Roman oppressors. But Jesus let them down. He did not simply want to liberate people from violent oppression. He seemed to want to liberate people from violence itself. So he began to proclaim an alternative kingdom, an alternative empire, and be different than what you thought. So he was changing in his teaching and behavior, what it meant to be the anointed one. So there was a time when Paul eventually gave us this phrase. When Paul first got on the path, he wanted a violent Messiah, just like other Jews. He wanted somebody to come in and take over, lead a charge against the Romans, get them out of office so that the Jews could take over. As a matter of fact, Paul at the beginning, uh, and he looked back on this, he bragged about his part in quelling the Jesus movement. He went around killing those Jesus followers because he didn't want that message to get out, but eventually he had a spiritual experience that turned his life around. Now, you've got to be careful, and I try to put this in the, in the announcement slides. you got to be careful when you show up in a place like this. It could change your life. And, and a lot of people say that they want that, but they're not really not prepared for that, you know? I mean, we come to church every Sunday and say it, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth. And then we go to the office the next day and somebody says, um, by the way, did you hear what happened to Bob yesterday? No, what? Said, God's will was done in his life. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> He'll never be the same again. It goes to our Friday night poker match. So Jesus had this favorite expression that he tried to get people to buy into. He wanted people to come into the kingdom of God. Now, that actually, that's not quite true. What he wanted people to realize was that they were in the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God was in them, and if they simply... Acknowledge that their lives would be different. It was not a place to get to. Heaven is not, if you want to use that phrase, is not a place to get to. It's a place to come from in the living of our lives. Jesus believed that people lived out of that kingdom their lives in the world would be different. And some accepted that invitation. And they lived that life. And you know what? It's because of them that we're having this conversation today. Now, Paul's favorite phrase for the same thing came to be being in Christ. So here's a shorthand way to understand what can be some confusing religious lingo If you want to understand Jesus, just keep in mind the phrase kingdom of God or rule of God or empire of God. None of those are really adequate because we don't consciously live in a kingdom. We don't consciously live in an empire, though we do, but we don't consciously think that way. It's a realm of reality. And if you want to understand Paul, just keep in mind being in Christ. Those phrases mean Exactly the same thing. Just Paul uses one and Jesus uses the other. In Jesus, though Paul never met him personally, Paul encountered a power that set him free. And this radically redefined his understanding of what the the Messiah or Christ meant. And, And the way of life brought about by this encounter with Jesus was not a way of violence. But it would be a way of nonviolent love. And this turned Paul's whole world upside down. Because instead of fighting to put an end to this new Jesus movement, he became part of a different kind of freedom movement. He was now in Christ. And he came to see himself not only as a member of this people, but as an ambassador for it, as one of its chief spokespeople. And and he was a member of the body in whom the liberating work of Jesus would be continued. And it wasn't limited to just one person, Jesus, said Paul, but it was going to be infused to anyone who was willing to follow him. Now remember, that's what we're trying to figure out, what it might mean if we were to choose to follow Jesus and not just have beliefs about him. So Paul traveled all around the Mediterranean world, inviting people to join him in Christ. And it was a movement for justice, peace, and joy. And Paul believed and taught that the world would be transformed as more and more people offered themselves to this movement. And um, Paul used a phrase, which I'm sure all of you church-going people have heard before. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices to this movement. And again, we don't use the word sacrifice often. It simply means to make sacred. Offer your sacred lives to this movement. What it means is that the liberating spirit of love could fill us, transform us, empower us to do what the Christ had manifested in life, which are peace, love, joy, patience, and humility. In Christ, people would be messianic people. That is, people in the process of being whole and free and loving, and and they're free then because of their own freedom to go into the world to bring wholeness, freedom, and love. The in Christ people would learn to live a new way of life with a new code of conduct and a new vision of what's possible and a new identity. Jesus was filled with the Spirit. And he was anointed, as it were, smeared, marked, crowned, got the gold medallion, to preach good news to poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberation to captives and freedom to prisoners. And when we joined that movement, of love and liberation, when we enter in Christ in the Messianic movement, we become participants in the ongoing embodiment of Jesus, which is why we can be called Little Christ, which is what Christian means. Got it? As if you're calling yourself a Christian, you are saying, I am a little Christ. Now, <clears throat> this is what I'm trying to seek to recover because it's been lost or largely lost to most people. Because what it means for most people now to be Christian is to join church or to believe something. Are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Methodist. Well, I'm not sure that's the same. Being a Christian is like having a set of beliefs or worse. It's like going to see that guy's train set. And thinking, looking at that world and being entertained by it for a little while is all there is to it. And I will be real clear. This is not a liberal versus conservative things. People who are on the religious right are very visible right now in our culture about things that must be believed. And over the years, some of you have reported to me that you have tried to get some of your friends to come here to this class to hear your teacher, and they give you a litmus test first. Does he believe in the the Bible? Is the Bible literal? Does he believe in the virgin birth? Does he believe in the resurrection? Because if not, I ain't coming. And please, humor me. It's not the resurrection. It's resurrection. Leave the article out. But people on the religious left can be just as dogmatic about assenting to a set of beliefs. They just have a different set of beliefs. And usually those beliefs encompass being negative toward conservative people. They've changed their beliefs, but they haven't changed their basic understanding about what it means to be a Christian. Being Christian is still assenting to a certain set of beliefs. Now, maybe this kind of explanation helps you understand why the behavior of so many Christians is so far from Jesus. A lot of people never understood the good news of the gospel. They never understood that the same spirit of love and freedom is at work in the world, and that if we are willing to rethink everything, our priorities, our values, our purposes, our politics, that we could participate in this movement of freedom and love. (laughs) Love and freedom, they don't give a hoot about labels. This is why Aurora says that we should be able to see Christ in everything and Christ in everyone because the phrase in Christ for Roar simply means the spirit of love and liberation. Now, since that spirit of love and liberation cannot be wholly or solely owned by one person or one culture or one religion, we should be able to see the Christ showing up everywhere, even in our neighbor. Now, you go back and read any of the Jesus narratives in the light of what I've just tried to say, and you will see that Jesus was always empowering people To be like him. He never once said, believe in me. He never once said, worship me. Where did that idea ever come from? What he said was, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Greater works than mine, you will do. And how was Jesus in the world? As a nonviolent expression of love, forgiveness, liberation, and healing. Folks, theology isn't theoretical. What you're hearing today is a theology that invites you into the movement of love and liberation in our world today. Imagine what it could mean for the planet, for the poor, for peace, even for politics. If more and more of us join God's ongoing movement to liberate the world From all that steals, kills, and destroys, and to fill it instead with justice, joy, and peace. Now, I've said it, but I want to say it again, just to be clear. Being in Christ does not put forth either an exclusive or an exceptional point of view. I know it is a Christian word, it's in the Christian tradition. But the phrase in Christ does provide a, a necessary container, because you have to put it in something to do this work of freedom and love. And, and the tradition that we're in, that we inherited in this culture, is Christian. We just have to make sense out of it in the way that makes sense that Jesus would say, Yeah, I think you got it. It may be a way for you to understand and embrace what it means to be Christian that doesn't insult your intelligence. Now, if you're going to make this move, which is a lifelong journey, there are several things that are required. You know what's coming. (laughs) You have to have a good, sustainable daily spiritual practice. And part of this spiritual practice means opening up your head space. So pick one of those two books that Holly and I are currently using, the Wallace book, the Karen Armstrong book, and read them. And if you don't think you have the time for that, and our culture seduces us into thinking we don't have the time, um, just go on the website and download the Reclaiming Jesus document or the Charter for Compassion and read them. And see where they show up in your life. Now, there is a lot more to having a daily spiritual practice than reading books. Um, And as a matter of fact, I, I think my insistence on having a daily spiritual practice can backfire on me. Because it creates the impression that having a daily spiritual practice is something you do, and then you get up and go live the rest of your life and... I know you do that, but actually your life is your practice. Your whole life is your practice. You never miss an opportunity to express peace, love, and joy, no matter what. One of the first things my first spiritual teacher, George, said to me was, when you figure out what your life is about, figure it out in a way where you can do what you think your life is about, no matter what you're doing. So, if you're painting stripes down the middle of the highway, if that's your job, have a way to do it where you can experience and express these values that you think are important, no matter what. So, I think that affects everything we do what we watch on TV, what we read, what we talk about with our friends, all of it. It affects all of it. You know, be like Jesus. Follow Jesus. He took his spiritual practice into every aspect of his life. Being in Christ means to be like that. So right now, we're in the section of the Wallace book we're working off of, in it's a of racial justice. And I think we need our heads open about this. So if you haven't seen it, get access to and watch the film... I Am Not Your Negro by James Baldwin. It's a documentary. He wrote it. Somebody else's voice is in it. Um, watch this film. James Baldwin is the man who said, Now everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. A second thing that is important in this being in Christ's work is to have people to hang out with and talk to. Um, you, could be, well, you could create a small group. Before you leave here today, you could turn to people around you. There are several people in this Ordinary Life Gathering who have created small groups already um, that they are a part of to talk about this stuff with, and book clubs and discussion groups and... Various things. We live in a time where the sickness of white supremacy is on the rise. What's our response to this? How do we plant seeds out there where we work and and the people that we associate with? How do we say that? The, the, The early followers of Jesus found strength and meaning in coming together as a community of people. And and keep in mind that because our culture's religion is consumerism, it tries to seduce us into thinking that things are important that are not important at all. And I can tell you with great deal of confidence that sacred mystery doesn't give a hoot about which religion people use to connect to her, and how to spread values of love and kindness and compassion and distributive justice that Jesus referred to as the least of these. Again, our culture tries to convince us that we don't have time for a contemplative practice. We do. I've had more than one person say to me over the last several months, you know, as long as my 401k is doing okay, the rest doesn't really affect me. Yes, it does. (laughs) That sentiment is about as far away from being in Christ as one could get. All great religions have talked about a different way of seeing. A different way of seeing comes from assuming a different perspective, a different vantage point, a different starting point. And I'm suggesting that for us, for this time, for this place, that place be deeper and more personal, not individualistic, but an understanding of what it means to be in Christ. I trust Jesus to be speaking the truth when he says that we are always in the sacred heart of God. And though I believe that God protects us from nothing, I believe God sustains us in everything. And I don't know about you, but I don't always stay conscious of this. More often than I care to admit, I I wake up, that is sometimes I become conscious, and I see that I am not within a country mile of the things I teach in here. I think the biggest addiction problem we have in this culture is that we get addicted to the way that we think and that we can convince ourselves of almost any nonsense and, and deny what's going on. It's the biggest biggest issue in any addiction is denial. Okay. So rivers and seas are a very huge part in the mystical story, the Christian tradition. You know, rivers ran through the Garden of Eden. There's a story about a great flood. In order to get from Egypt to the Promised Land, people have to cross the Red Sea. John the Baptist invited people to come to the Jordan and get baptized. Cleansing was a big thing in the Jewish religion, as I've said. Jesus said, I've got the water of life. I am the water of life. There's a great water and the wine story. I heard Jim Finley say at a conference one time, you know, the Red Sea doesn't part until we step into it. And we often are in over our heads before it does. There's there's a hymn written by Robert Lowry, a Baptist minister of back in the middle of the 19th century, Um and he, he wrote this hymn after reflecting on a particular passage in the book of Revelation about a river that was the crystal river of God. And it used to be a, a hymn that we sang in church when I was growing up. Shall we gather at the river, the wonderful river of God? So that's what I want to invite you to do today, together at the river. I want to in, 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 ask you to imagine, just imagine, That this in Christ business is a river. And and I want to invite you to step out of the culture and into the river. Step out of the normal bounds of your life. And learn and keep learning to see yourself differently. All life is born anew every moment. Now, leaving the cultural constraints that we're used to is terrifying. But I want to promise you there's nothing to fear. Nothing to be afraid of. Just enter the river, okay? You know what happens when you get in the river? You get wet. (laughs) And you know what? It doesn't matter whether you have entered the river hundreds of times or whether this is your very first time, you get just as wet. You don't come uh, into the river for the first time and come out a little wet. Nor after entering the river a lot, you don't come out dry. There's no point that you can say, well, I can't get wet anymore. The river doesn't grant itself to me. I've used up all my wetness. A person who has entered the river many times can still have a profoundly new awareness of wetness. Nevertheless, the person who has just entered the river for the first time is just as wet as somebody who's entered it many times all their life. Now, it doesn't matter whether you enter the river after having lived on its banks for years or whether you have journeyed hundreds of miles to get to the river. You're just as wet either way. It isn't as if the person who traveled 100 miles gets wetter as some sort of reward for all their work, near or far, just as wet. And it also doesn't matter whether you enter the river after a great deliberate time of studying and thinking and all this, or whether you get pushed in the river from a dock, (laughs) or fall off the back of a boat, you get just as wet. The person who arrives at the river by way of a difficult courageous journey is not rewarded by getting wetter than the person who just falls in. Also it doesn't matter whether you enter the river by daylight so everybody can see you or whether you are a secret river enterer and you come by night. you're gonna get just as wet. and it doesn't matter whether you enter the river, by yourself or whether you enter with thousands, everybody gets just as wet. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what your belief system is. You're not getting any more wet because you have a so-called better set of beliefs than anybody else. It doesn't matter if you are what society calls a good person or what society calls a bad person. You get in a river, you're going to get just as wet as anybody else. It's called the graciousness of the river. Jesus' most radical teaching is that the sun shines on the good and the bad. Oh, that was so contrary to Jewish thought. Now, I don't mean to imply that getting in a river is risk free. This being in Christ's business, the ego is fragile, It's, it's going to drown. But the self knows how to breathe underwater. You ever had one of those beautiful dreams where you're underwater and you're able to breathe and swim? And That's, that's God speaking to you. Having a, an experienced river enterer can be helpful along the way. But no matter how good a teacher you have, the only way you personally get wet is by going in the river. Not by reading about it, not by hearing about it. Though these can be helpful, so don't stop coming. Reading and and hearing can help, they, they, they can help you get your courage up. Particularly if you feel like the river is cold and deep. But really, your experiential identity of who you are in God is all that matters. And that was the message of Jesus. I see you for who you truly are. You are a child of God. Okay. So I'm going to give you the really good news. Well, it's really the terrible, awful end of the world news, too. (laughs) It's both. You can't have one without the other. You ready for it? Sooner or later, you're going to get in the river. It's where you came from. Now, wouldn't it be good to have this entering experience over with? (laughs) Before you drop the body... The way I see it is that meaning and happiness and joy and shared love come from the willingness and awareness to go to that place right here, right now. So, shall we gather at the river? No matter where you go, no matter what happens this week, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I will see you here next week. Oh, I'll be here, but I want you to come here, Chris, next week. Thank you.